the Behind the Seams podcast. I'm your host, Nunzio Signore, looking to bring you great dialogue with some of the best in the world of player development. The world of training baseball players has changed dramatically during the past few years, and I'm looking forward to shedding some light here on what's the latest, what's the best, and what's really happening in the world of player development. Thanks for joining me for the ride. Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. Before we begin, I want to tell you about our new remote training programs here at RPP. We've been offering remote training for quite some time, but we always required athletes to come in-house for assessments. Now, we can do the whole assessment online, and we're really excited about bringing all of our services, pitching, hitting, and strength training, to your doorstep. So if you like what we do and how we do it, check it out on our website at rocklandpeakperformance.com under remote training in the toolbar. Thanks. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Behind the Seams Podcast. I'm Nunzio Signore, and today I've got my newly hired pitching coordinator, Matt Hartshorn. I'm really excited about this guy. He brings with him a plethora of experience. His work ethic is incredible, and there's a lot of things I love about Matt, especially his knowledge of movement on top of his knowledge of pitching mechanics and his knowledge of data. So uh, I'm going to let him explain his path here. And without further ado, let's welcome Matt Hartshorn to the show. Matt, thanks for being on, brother. Thank you for having me, Nuns. It's awesome to be here. Let's hear a bit about yourself and how you arrived where you presently are here as a pitching coordinator at RPP. Let's take it from where are you from and your path here. Yeah, so I'm from Toms River, New Jersey. I played at Toms River South, and then I ultimately went to school at Ryder University. So my road here is kind of an unconventional one. My freshman year of college was COVID year, so that was a mess in and of itself. And then my sophomore year when we came back, there were still restrictions, and I had a bunch of injuries I was dealing with. And after that season, I had talked to the coaches about deciding if I was going to come back and play or not. And that if I didn't come back, that I wanted to stay with the team and work as like a student manager anywhere I can to help because I loved everyone on the team and I wanted to stay a part of the game. So I ended up coming back in September for my junior year and we got a track man for the team and I ended up taking over as a data analyst. And then shortly after that, they made me the volunteer assistant coach. So I did that for my junior and senior years, which was 2022 and 2023. And I'm proud to say that I'm actually one of a few people in rider history to have a ring as a player and a coach for the team. That's awesome. So that's, that's a good accomplishment for me that I that I learned about when I graduated from there. Uh, sandwiched in between my time at Ryder, I worked for the Trenton Thunder in the MLB Draft League as a player development and data analyst. Uh, we had 15 guys either drafted or signed from our team that year, so that was a huge accomplishment for our team. That's where you met Nico, my uh, director of pitching. Yeah, Nico was on that team. He was a pitcher. He was one of the better arms we had. When we were looking for a, another a pitching coordinator, you had applied for the job, and I called Eric Cressy, one guy that where you were, you had just come from, and I also uh, asked Nico if he had ever heard of you, and he said, dude, he was – working with the Trenton Thunder when I was there, and he had nothing but great things to say about you. So anyway, from Trenton Thunder, go ahead. Yeah, so after Trenton Thunder, I went back for my senior year at Ryder, finished up there, and then this last summer I worked, like you mentioned, Eric, I went down there and worked at Cressy Sports Performance in Florida as a pitching development and strength coach. So I was there up until the end of the summer, and that brings me here to my journey at RPP. 
So how the first week's been on the job? Uh, what are some things you've been exposed to that you're excited about rolling up your sleeves and getting into? The first few weeks have been phenomenal. Getting to learn all of the techniques and stuff, how we go about things here has been great. All the staff has been super nice and welcoming towards me. And getting to build relationships with all the athletes has been a big thing for me because I want to be able to connect with them and them have to have trust in me going forward when we start in December. But some of the stuff that I'm excited to start using is some of the jump mats and how we analyze an athlete's ability to decelerate, I think, is really interesting. It's something I haven't really been a part of before, so it's another piece of the puzzle we can use to analyze a pitcher. And a huge part of the puzzle as well. From my point of view as the owner of this facility and an employer, when Matt came here, I just have to tell you, his work ethic is second to none. If I needed a video, if I needed some cues for something, or I I wanted to uh, look over something, I needed some posts or reorganizing our throwing program based off of some things that I had spoken to with uh, Alan Jager. Um, We got together on it. As soon as I could ask this guy something, I needed video. Five minutes. The videos, uh, nuns. The videos in your in your Dropbox. I'm like, oh, wow. Um, hey Matt, can you check out this uh, throwing program and get back to me? Um, you know, in the next couple of days. By the end of the day, that the whole thing was done and typed out. It, it's just, it's unbelievable how efficient this guy is, and it's really important too because this entire month for us consists of table assessments as well as pitching video because we're getting ready for the off season. And I thought today was a great day to introduce Matt and talk about how we organize the process. I had sent Matt some onboarding video and we sent to our newly hires. He came in, he had it pretty much nailed on week one. So um, we're going to talk about a couple ways that we analyze the pitchers and the assessment and what we do with guys getting them ready to ramp up in December. So first up is the table and movement assessment. And I specifically want to discuss some of what we're looking at that we carry over into the video analysis. And the first one is infrasternal angle. And I don't want to get too deep in the weeds with this, but I can tell you that it's incredibly important. And Matt has a wealth of knowledge on it. And um, so let's start with the infrasternal angle. Please tell the listeners what this is, why it's important metric in regards to not only throwing a baseball, but hitting one as well, and its direct correlation to rotation and power. Yeah, so infrasternal angle, or we'll call it ISA, is basically the angle at the base of your rib cage. This angle tells you it's basically just what you are. You can't change it. It's how you're born. Most people are biased towards one end of the spectrum, whether that be narrow or wide, which I'll discuss in a couple minutes. But basically, we want to use an individual's ISA to encourage positions and strategies to help enhance dynamic movement. So the two archetypes we talked about, I mentioned, were narrow and wide. Narrow is less than 90 degrees, and wide is greater than 90 degrees. Because this is audio only, we'll, we'll put the athlete supine lying on his back on the table, and we'll, we'll find the xiphoid process, and we'll press in underneath where the, where the rib cage ends at the bottom and angles out, and we'll press in and up, and we'll get an angle with a goniometer that measures the same thing we measure internal external rotation of the hips, T-spine rotation, and glenohumeral rotation and we'll measure that measure that angle just wanted to draw that picture yeah so narrow isa they tend to be 
more in terms of pitching and hitting. They'll tend to have more of a squatty load. They'll have more of a vertical shin for pitchers, more of a rotational aspect to their delivery or their swing versus a wide ISA who's kind of the opposite. They'll have more of a hinge load, knee inside of their foot, uh, linear delivery where they're focusing on rotating in a narrow hallway over a short period of time. So when you're saying more of a hinge delivery for the wide guys, are you talking about uh, a hinge as far as does that include a vertical shin as well? It's kind of a vertical shin, but it's not as squatty as someone like a Spencer Strider who's a narrow versus a Garrett Cole who's a wide. Right. That's great. Uh, just going forward through the rest of this, one thing I want to mention is to use ISA as another metric to help identify an athlete's lowest hanging fruit. Think of the proximal to distal model. Think how the ISA can affect someone's hip bias or their shoulder range of motion. Don't use it as the end-all, be-all answer. And talking about hip bias, how does that help us look at the back leg as far as hip biases go? Because I believe that with an infrasternal angle, looking at ISA, sometimes it works in what you would expect to see in the reverse order of how we use it as far as uh, retroverted or antiverted hips. So sometimes we'll look at a guy who has a lot of ER and very little IR on the table and the first thing we think about is, okay, he's got a lot of ER. We might want to bias that hip into ER without looking at the ISA. And then the ISA can tell us that, wow, we might, we might have that completely backwards in regards to how he rotates. Is that correct? Yes and no. I would say it depends on each person because people tend to break models all the time. Not everyone follows it exactly. But narrows do tend to have an ER bias of their entire body, while wides tend to have more of an IR bias. So for a narrow, we might turn their foot out if their ER says so, and they'll have more of the squat load versus a wide. If they have the IR capable to do so, we'll turn their foot in, and they'll have more of the hinge load. But you have to take into other factors like ankle fl dorsiflexion, hip abduction um, knee or hip flexion just taking in all of these factors to see how we can best maximize someone's load but what you're saying is for a narrow you're saying they would have more of an er bias correct right well what if we see a narrow that has tons of ir and not a lot of er you're still calling him an er bias from rotation is are, are we looking at this just from the upper body or is this hip as well so when you get to the point where if you had a narrow who has ir we're going to play into his range of motion we'll probably have his foot straight or turned in a little bit we can see if there's a underlying problem going on why he's limited in er or if that's just how he is but in terms of his delivery because he's a narrow being more rotational will help him overall with his torso rotation, pelvis rotation. But in terms of his load, will play into what his range of motion says. Right. So talking about higher ranges of motion, high, more rotation, explain to what that looks like in the pitching delivery. So for a narrow, if we want them to rotate more, think like f huge front arm swing, big front leg swing. Think of your body getting into big positions versus a wide who's staying more compact, they move slow, and then they rotate super fast quick. Like I mentioned before, Spencer Strider versus Garrett Kohler is kind of a big comparison today. And as far as the stride phase, do you think it would be more beneficial? Like, once again, we're talking there are no absolutes, but would you think it would be more beneficial for a wide ISA would have a tendency to probably drift more so we can hold that position and create a really quick later rotation later in the delivery correct yeah wides will tend to have because they can produce more force because if they have more ir they're able to drift better down the mound 
to sum everything up, so as far as uh, infrasternal angle goes, we're going to look at a narrow or a wide, how they rotate. Narrows will rotate longer, have more range of motion in their rotation, uh, where wides will be um, shorter. They have a tendency to be a little bit more explosive with shorter movements. I always liken that to a really small, tight spring as opposed to a really long, loose spring that has, that has to go through a higher range of motion before it actually reaches end range. Correct. Awesome. So when we see things on the table, we have to take into consideration what we're seeing in video. So using things like ISA and hip bias can give us rabbit holes to look down to maybe see if an athlete isn't really where he wants to be. We have things we can look at. And sometimes ISA might be the deciding factor and sometimes it might be hip bias. Honestly, really just trying and see what works. Is that right? Yes. After we look at video analysis, we go to mocap. Before Matt got here, I was the guy that was really looking at all the mocaps. It's really refreshing to have somebody else who has experience with mocaps. We break them down into three buckets. Uh, One is positional angles, one is angular velocities, and one is timing, basically putting it all together. So we're going to talk a little bit about each of these, try to not get too deep into the weeds so as to confuse people. But once again, it needs to be taught, it needs to be discussed because it is prominent thing that we look at. So let's start with positional angles, how we look at them, and why they're important. So positional angles, basically how big or small are the positions that the athlete is getting to on the mound. The way we assess this is we look at three event points, foot plant, max external rotation, and ball release. Looking at these positions, we get certain metrics to look at, such as hip-shoulder separation, shoulder abduction, pelvis rotation, knee flexion extension angles, and the list goes on. What this tells us is we're kind of getting an idea of how big or small the positions the athlete is getting to, and is it correct for their body type. Relating back to the ISA, narrows will generally have bigger positions. They'll be more stretched out in terms of their rotational capacity versus wides who will have smaller positions and they rotate over a shorter period of time. So basically what you're saying in the case of, say, hip-shoulder separation, when we see a guy with a a long torso sling, a really tall guy, um, this is when anthropometrics come into play a lot. These narrow guys, generally, if they're narrow, they probably have a really a longer sling as well. So when we're looking for hip-shoulder separation, different guys need different amounts. So when we're looking at mocaps and we have ranges, we have to understand some guys might be at the bottom of that range and some guys might be at the top of that range, correct? Yeah, that's correct. Narrows, like you said, some of them will have that longer torso. They're kind of that longer build. Most narrows tend to be basketball players. If you look at the NBA, most Yeah, it's that Randy players. Johnson look. Yeah. Like we have Chandler Brierly in here too. He's a big, tall lefty. He's a narrow versus like a wide who's like going to be that power lifter, stocky, strong archetype. Like a Strowman. Yes. Great. So to continue off of that, being able to look at these positional angles in terms of whether an athlete is more stiff or if they have congenital laxity is important too, not just relying on the ISA aspect, whether they'll be big or small positions. Because if someone has a ton of range of motion, they're super laxity, being able to own the positions they have when they get onto the mound is more important than just kind of following the ISA pattern. There's a point where so much mobility and so much flexibility can actually be a detriment If these guys, for me all the time, it's really, really imperative that these guys get a good dose of strength to create stability so they can hold those big, long positions that they have. 
Yeah, it's all about having stability in those positions and owning them on the yeah, mound. Yeah, that's great. Let's talk a little bit about angular velocities. And basically, um, just let me, for the, for the listeners, angular velocities are the speeds at which we watch the athlete move at anywhere from his angular velocity of knee extension when he's posting up, pelvic rotation, torso rotation, shoulder internal rotation, wrist, all the way up into the ball. So talk a bit about angular velocities and how that, and how that parlays right into what we see with um, positional angles and timing. Yeah, as Nunzio said, he mentioned how fast the athlete's moving. He mentioned all the different metrics that we analyze. We tag those at the same event points that I mentioned, before, the three event points I mentioned before. In terms of the ISA aspect, a narrow will tend to rotate slower, think because they're more stretched out in their positions, they have bigger positions, but they'll move a little bit slower versus a wide who will have much smaller positions, but they're going to rotate super faster over that short period of time. So, so far, the take-home for me with the ISA and the rota- and the, the higher rotation athletes, you get a narrow ISA guy when we get him on the table, and we know this guy has a pretty much more a better range of rotational motion he doesn't move quite as quickly so i'm always likening this to okay we need to throw the baseball right the end result is the baseball needs to leave the hand that's where our end result if i put a hundred pounds on a sled and i take a guy he's not the strongest guy in the world but i give him a 10 yard running start to hit that sled and push it he can probably push that sled as far or sometimes even farther than a guy who's actually stronger, and I don't give him any running start at all. So these narrow guys with longer ranges of motion are basically able to create force for a longer period of time. They can't really create as much force, but they can do it for a longer period of time. So they get that running start. Whereas wide guys, they're really quick and short, and they're moving in a really small window, which is unbelievable for baseball. So my question to you so far um, as far as when we're looking at pitchers, do you find that one or the other has a tendency to work better in pro ball? I don't think there there is one or the other that works better. I, I mean, obviously they both there's there's wide and narrows. Yeah. But, but is mm-hmm. there a tendency yeah. to be more than one than the other? I guess it depends on the person's archetype. Some people probably bias more of the velocity aspect, like you said, for baseball, where you're moving at you have to move super fast over a short period of time having higher angular velocities is going to help you but making sure it's not a detriment to your arm or any other part of your body where you're adding extra stress where you don't need it and i think that's when we start to get into the timing aspect where we'll get super in depth and how that kind of ties all three of these buckets together one more thing about angular velocities before we get on to timing i can tell you from doing mocaps right now for the last five years when people say that you don't really need a mocap they're right you don't need a mocap you don't need a jump mat you don't need a force plate but these are tools that help us better see things that we can't see with our eyes and i will tell you anybody that tells you they can see angular velocities with their eyes is selling you selling you a bunch of snake oil so Let's talk about how we first looked at positional angles and angular velocities, and now we're looking at timing. Explain to the listeners exactly what you mean by timing. So what I mean by timing is the key that is tying it all together is the kinematic sequencing of the delivery. I would say at the high school and college level, you're going to see it a lot. This is where everyone seems to have the biggest disconnect. 
not being able to sequence their body properly. And then that ultimately has effect on your positions and your velocities. So what we look for is we look for to have your pelvis, torso, elbow, shoulder, all in that order peaking in angular velocity. So when you have that in the correct order, it'll make it much easier for the athlete to succeed and have a much smoother, cleaner delivery. And by sequencing better, you'll ultimately optimize your positions and your velocities for your archetype. While we're on the topic of timing, another thing I always look at with my mocaps is I'll have some guys who have just an incredible amount of hip shoulder separation. And then I'll look at their timing and I'll see that their hip shoulder separation is peaking like way before foot plant. So they're actually creating that torque to unwind with and they're beginning to unwind with it before their foot has even hit the ground. They're wasting all that beautiful torque that they're grabbing. And a lot of times I see these guys, they're, they're just really too overly counterly rotated with their upper body and they just can't hold it and they start unwinding early. So as far as the timing goes, that's another thing I noticed um, not only with just um, the sequencing of pelvis, torso, shoulder, hand is hip shoulder separation is a huge one where a lot of guys are early and by the same token, I don't really get a lot of guys that are late, nor do I mind that as much. But Let's talk about one more thing as far as timing goes, about looking at the timing between peak pelvis rotation and peak torso rotation. Yeah, so the gap between those two event points should be similar. We want them spaced out a certain distance apart from each other. If they're too close or torsos before pelvis, it means they're just rotating too early then that's going to be an issue in terms of how they're sequencing their body. It could lead to injuries. It could lead to poor mechanics. It could lead to a poor backside load. It could lead to a plethora of things. I found that a lot of times it's really not that the trunk's coming around early. It's that the pelvis is peaking late. When we look at a kinematic sequence and we look at foot plant, we really want that pelvis, peak pelvis rotation to happen at or just slightly after foot plant. So if the pelvis is in the right, if the torso is in the right spot after that, but the pelvis is late, it's getting closer to that peak torso rotation. And that's what's closing your gap a lot of times. It's mo a lot of people think, you know, oh, wow, you're opening up with your trunk. Really, it's that you're, you're not actually getting force into the ground and getting it back up again with the pelvis. And that's the deceleration that we test that you were talking about. How a guy lands, how he accepts force from the ground back into his body and goes the other way with it. That's, that's a huge thing that um, I think you're going to eat that alive, you know. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So now that we've talked about the assessment a little bit, how is all of this, talk to our audience about how all of this is applied to our pitching lab and college winter programs in December and January. Break down the thought process. You know, once we have video table and mocap, break it down how we go into creating a throwing program and actually throwing drills for our guys. Yeah, my kind, my thought process behind it is I'm going to pull up their table assessment, their mobility screen. I'm going to pull up their power. I'm going to pull up their... Uh, throwing video analysis. I'm going to pull up everything we have on a guy and I'm going to take a look at all of it. I'm going to say, what is the story telling you? I'm going to read through everything, make sure I have a good understanding of what the athlete is doing. And once I go through all that, we decide what their best path of success is. Our disconnect sheets that we create here will help us analyze uh, the athlete's video and it'll give us which type of throwing drills and throwing correctives we think will best benefit them based on certain mechanical adjustments we go through, such as pelvic glute engagement, 
uh, shoulder positioning and arm path, torso rotation, and so on. So we can then progress these throwing corrective drills that we give guys from phase one to phase two to advanced as they improve their movement patterns and be, become more aware of how their body moves in space. And these throwing correctives, we've now implemented the ISA factor into it as well. So they're more uh, focused and they're more focused on that certain archetype a guy is, whether it is a wide or a narrow. That was one thing that when you came here, uh, you said, I have some new throwing drills. Any anytime, anytime we start to change the system a little bit, me and my partner look at each other and go, oh, my God, this is going to be like, all right, here we go. We got to film them. We got to embed cues. We got to figure out, actually, do we want to do these? So my first question always is, um, why do you want to do these? Why do you want to do these new throwing drills? And you brought up a great point. You said some of these drills are um, – too hard, I believe, for a young guy. And some of these drills are too easy for an advanced guy who's already needs to progress. So just like, just like strength training, we need to progress throwing drills. And I was like, you know what? I'm down. That was a great answer. You show me what you want. We spent a week looking at throwing drills, talking about them, which ones were good, which ones were bad. And this is a perfect example. 20 years in the business and a guy comes in and um, talks about my throwing program and my drills and, you know, I'm like, here, here, man. Let's do it. Anything that makes the product better. So kudos to you, Matt. Lastly, let's just talk about mobility work in the weight room. Let's talk about ISA again here a little bit. Like, let's just use the core and breathing and squatting versus hinging drills. When I say that, I mean deadlifting versus um, – squats, uh, chops versus lifts, and breathing drills. Let's go through all of them at a, t at a time. So can you first talk about breathing a little bit and then talk about core and then squat versus hinge? Yeah, I'll say this before we start and go into it. The main goal when you're in the weight room doing mobility or strength training, for a narrow, we kind of want to open up their ISA a little bit versus a wide where we kind of want to close them down, close up their infrasternal angle a little bit more so just kind of keep that in mind as we go through these breathing drills uh, chops and lifts and squat versus hinge patterns so when we talk about breathing drills narrows they'll inhale and then subtle ex exhale subtly think more when they breathe out they're fogging up the glass versus a wide they'll inhale and then they'll exhale forcefully like they're uh, blowing out birthday candles we pretty much covered breathing out through balloons, which I to this day still use. Here's another example of how there's an there's a B to that to that scenario. Whereas I was treating the exhalation on every breathing drill as a forceful air into a balloon, making sure they're breathing out hard. So basically everyone was getting breathing drills that were kind of biased towards a wide, where now we're going to start who gets balloons and who doesn't is based off of narrow or wide. Great. Can you talk a little bit about core? Yes. Yeah, so then we can focus on the chops and lifts aspect. Chops would be what wides would do and then cable lifts will be what narrows would do. Chops, we want them for wides because it'll focus on the closure of their ISA versus a lift for a narrow, it's going to focus on opening up their ISA. Yeah, basically on wides, we want to get that rib cage down. Yes. And I, f I find that most of us have always talked about getting that rib cage down, getting that rib cage down. And sometimes um, maybe just getting that rib, focusing on just getting that rib cage down is not enough when you're dealing with guys like a narrow. 
Correct. Yeah. Sometimes people have get into lumbar extension. They might have a rib flare forward head. There's other compensations that go with it rather than just focusing. Yeah. And these wides kind of live in extension, don't they? I yeah. mean, you know, like you, yeah, like, that's like, I'm, I'm kind of like you told me, we got me on the table one day. I wanted to see what it was. I'm kind of a wide, but I'm kind of like neutral as well. So let's just talk really briefly. A neutral guy. What, 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 what happens there? Neutral guys, they can do both. They free for all with them in the weight room in terms of things. It's kind of just following their range of motion, see what they need to improve, and then just seeing what works best for them on the mound. Right. There's a, there's a little bit of more experimentation with, with, a, with a neutral guy, finding, finding the right balance. Correct. Right. Making good at what he already does and improving on what he needs to do. Um, lastly, squat versus hinge. So like I said before, when we talked about pitching – narrows are going to be better have a better squat load versus wides will have a better hinge load that holds true in the weight room narrows are going to squat better wides are going to hinge better so when we have them in the weight room we want to flip those we want to have the wides doing more squats the narrows doing more hinges for the wides we want them goblet squatting ssb squatting front squatting or like a front foot elevated split squat to focus on them like i said before the closure of the isa everything's held in the anterior chain Versus a, a narrow, if they were going to squat, we're going to back squat to open them up a little bit more. Or a rear foot elevated split squat, we're going to have them loaded posteriorly. And in terms of hinging, we'll have wides. They'll do their basic RDLs here and there, but we're going to focus more on the squatting with them. But the narrows, we're going to hammer dumbbell RDLs, barbell RDLs, kettlebell, trap bar, barbell deadlifts, uh, single leg RDLs. We're going to really drill those hinge patterns into the narrows. That's great, man. This has been this has been unbelievable um, for me, and a lot of great information for guys that are trying to, you know, work with their guys and really just, you know, like ISA to me is like anthropometrics. Um, the cons of anthropometrics and checking ISA is it's something that can't be changed. It's bony. Okay. Um, it, it 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 lives there and it's not getting changed. Okay, but. We can certainly know for a fact that it tells us how we have to train. So it takes a lot of the guesswork around about out of what we have to do when we're dealing with the frame. It's basically looking at the frame of the car instead of while we try to change the engine and make the car more steerable with flexibility and mobility. When we look at ISA and anthropometrics, we're talking about like the frame of the car. This is something that is not going to change. So we have to build the inside of the car to work within that frame. And I think when we're looking at talking about ISA and in analyzing our guys, we're talking about a wider guy is has a more shorter range of motion, but he accelerates better. And when we look at a narrow guy, we have a longer range of motion with less acceleration, but they can produce that um, force for a longer period of time. We also know that there's different rib cage and pelvic positioning with narrows and wides. And we have to take that into consideration both in their breathing drills to help get that rib cage down or help fill up, get posterior expansion. Um, and we also have to work on their core in the same way, figuring out where a guy needs to be in regards to his rib cage and his pelvis. So um, this is something that I'm I'm so happy that we started diving into uh, this year. And then with the addition of Matt, we got a little even deeper into the weeds about it. And um, I'm really looking forward, man, to this offseason with you. I think our guys are going to just excel with you in that tunnel. So um, 
Thanks for being with us, brother. Thank you for having me. I'm honored to start, and I can't wait to get going. Awesome. You have a Twitter yet? I do. It is Matt underscore Hartshorn2. So reach out to him. Reach out to Matt. Ask him any questions. He'll be posting. He'll give you a lot of content as well. Uh, you can reach me at, at Nunzio Signore uh, on Twitter, or you can reach my facility at RPP underscore baseball on Twitter and Instagram. I've got a book out called Velocity-Based Training, How to Apply Science, Technology, and Data to Maximize Performance. You can get that on Amazon, and it's released by Human Kinetics. Thank you, Matt. Thanks once again for being here. Thank you for having me. And stay tuned next time for the next episode of Behind the Seams podcast. Have a great day.